we are eager to be up here, totally up here, living in our own home and so on and so forth. But it's been a huge blessing uh, that we've been able to stay with so many of you families throughout the last couple of months. And um, Angela and I have gotten to know your kids and listen to their stories and all the dirt they have on you guys. And it's it's been great. We'd love to see... Um, Love to see so many families um, set apart by the gospel. So there's this old joke. Of, uh, turn, in, turn in your Bibles to Luke 20. We're still there. Uh, there's an old joke about a scientist who, who says to God, Listen, God, we've decided that uh, we don't need you anymore. Those, these days we can clone people. We can transplant, transplant organs. We can do all sorts of things that seem miraculous. And God says, So you don't need me. And the scientist is like, That's right. Um, well, why don't we just put this to the test? Why don't you create a human being the way that I created a human being? And uh, the scientist is like, no problem, male or female? And uh, God says, male. And so the scientist bends down to pick up a scoop of dirt, and God says, well, hold on, get your own dirt. Uh, that, that's, that's, um, that's really the message of the number of messages we've gone through over the past several weeks. This idea of God's complete and total ownership over all things is just showing up time and time again in Luke chapter 20. Interestingly enough, that theme keeps coming up when people are challenging Jesus. The, the answer pretty much to everything Jesus, uh, the, the, every question that people ask Jesus ultimately kind of comes back to, well, because I own it, or well, because I created it, or because I'm in charge. Those are the basic answers to any objection we would bring to God. And we see in Luke 19 that a group of people are trying to entrap Jesus, and uh, they bring the following to him. Verse 19, The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Now, this phrase, pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him. The Greek has the sense of a trap being set. And they're using their sincerity as bait. Now, that's important because I'm a psalm guy. I, I have spent, I would say, 10 years reading the psalms pretty much every day. And um, the Psalms are Jesus' prayer book. All throughout Jesus' ministry, the Psalms are either in the foreground, he's quoting them, he's praying them, or they're at the least in the background. And in this particular case, there's a whole group of Psalms that are at work in the background at this particular moment. Because many of the Psalms concern this issue. Someone setting a trap for you to fall into. So, these psalms have a consistent theme. May the one who set the trap, may the one who dug the pit for me, fall into the pit that they dug, fall into the net that they laid. Let me read a few of these. Psalm 7. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. Psalm 9, the nations have sunk in the pit they are made, they made, and in the net they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. 
The wicked are snared in the work of their hands. Uh, Proverbs 26.7 says, Whoever digs a pit will fall into it. This, this, this idea is actually consistent throughout the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. That God's people pray that their enemies, in seeking to entrap them, will actually wind up being trapped themselves. In fact, one of the, the, the great stories in the Old Testament is about a man named Haman. And he is trying to bring the execution of a man named Mordecai about. And he actually goes so far as to build gallows in the city center so that he can have Mordecai hung from these gallows. And at a last second, providence of God, it's actually Haman who winds up hanging from, the Bible says, hanging from the gallows he built. So this theme of someone laying a trap for a godly person only to fall into that trap themselves is consistent throughout Scripture. And I want you to see that that's what happens when we argue with God. That's always what happens when we argue with God. God will use our very words against us, our very arguments against us. This week I was watching an interview with uh, astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson because that's what I do in my spare time. And they asked Mr. Tyson, do you believe in God? And he said this, God is supposedly good and God is supposedly powerful. And yet, Mr. Tyson sees children dying of leukemia and thousands being swept away in tsunamis. Therefore, the scientific evidence presents itself as follows. Either God is not strong enough to intercede on their behalf, or he is not good enough to care. And in that moment, on a talk show, everyone's quite impressed with an answer like that. And the truth is, is that he's going to have his shot at having that conversation with God. I don't predict that will go well. Even from my very limited human perspective, I can see that he has dug a pit for himself. For one thing, Tyson's worldview, if it were consistent, would have absolutely no problem with children dying of leukemia. Neil deGrasse Tyson is an evolutionary Darwinist. He believes that the only rule in this universe that really matters, the only absolute good in this universe, is the survival of the fittest. And a child with leukemia is clearly not the fittest. So if he were consistent with his own worldview, he would see a child dying with leukemia as, in fact, a good thing that is the outcome of the universe's constant working against those that are unfit to survive. And likewise, if he were to see thousands of people wiped out by a tsunami, he would say, well, the equilibrium of nature is taking hold and the problem of overpopulation is a little less of a problem today than it was yesterday. If he's being consistent with his own worldview, he would look at those things and say they're either good or they are insignificant. But somewhere deep in his heart, he sees a child suffering for leukemia and has a feeling that is completely contrary to his own worldview. He sees it as wrong. But his view of that as wrong isn't coming from him. It had to be put into him by someone other than him and put in him at such a deep level that he, a very smart man, wouldn't see the contradictions at play. 
that he would see suffering as good or bad is evidence of a God who is good and powerful enough to place those things in his heart. Well, there's another problem. In order for Neil deGrasse Tyson to be consistent in his objections, in order for his complaints about the suffering of children to be legitimate, we would need to see in Neil deGrasse Tyson's life a very visible and tangible concern for the welfare of children. We would need to see extraordinary and sacrificial efforts to protect children from unjust suffering. We would probably want to see that he's got a number of Thai or Bangladeshis living in his home. Because if Neil deGrasse Tyson wants to ask God why God doesn't use his power to care for these people, then it's only legitimate to ask Neil deGrasse Tyson why he doesn't use his power to care for these people. And if he doesn't use his power to care for these people, then he is not good according to his own definition and therefore incapable of issuing a judgment on the goodness of God. Now, his response may likely be, well, we expect more from God. We expect more from God than me. I'm not God. We expect more. And we would respond, exactly. We want a God who is bigger than us and better than us. And that means having a God who works in ways we do not understand. You see, in his simple statement that God is either not good or not powerful, we see that Neil deGrasse Tyson isn't either of those. He falls into the pit that he dug, and that's exactly what the scriptures predict will happen when we argue with God, and that's exactly what we see happening in our text this morning. These folks feign a bit of sincerity. They use it as bait. They're setting a trap, and they ask Jesus this question. Verse 22. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Some versions say, should we pay tax to Caesar? That's, that's not really the helpful way to think about this, because this isn't a tax in the way we think of as a tax. It's important to understand the, uh, the, the historical uh, the context here. Let me just explain. When Caesar invaded and occupied a new land, he required every household to pay one denarius, uh, about a hundred bucks per male household, male member of a household. Remember when Jesus like, gets born in Bethlehem instead of Nazareth and that whole weird thing with the, with the manger and Joseph and Mary and no room in the inn? Well, that was because this new Caesar named Tiberius, the son of the Caesar before, uh, Caesar just means king, uh, Caesar had declared a census over all the Jews so that he could get an accurate tally of who needed to pay this tribute. This wasn't about the money. He wasn't trying to raise a bunch of money. Uh, this was about a power play. hundred bucks wasn't that much. It was, it was one worker's wages uh, you know, for, for a week's worth of work or so. It wasn't really about that. It was really about declaring to everyone that Caesar was in charge. And it was really just an act of domination. And for the Jews, this pledge of submission came uncomfortably close to a demand to worship Caesar. You can see how that would be, right? This command to give this tribute, tribute means honor, uh, to, 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 to pledge loyalty to, this command to give tribute to Caesar could be, in the Jewish mind, 
a difficulty because they didn't have a whole list of gods. Caesar wasn't just one more god. That system worked really well everywhere else in the world. It didn't really work well in Palestine, which is why there were so many troubles in Palestine, so many troubles in Israel. So they had trouble with this idea that this Caesar would require them to pay tribute because they didn't have a whole list of gods. They had one god, and they were supposed to worship him and him alone. So they really think they've got Jesus here. This question really feels like foolproof. Like there's no way we're falling into this pit. If he responds, yes, pay the tribute, then in a sense they could construe that he's encouraging them to worship other gods. And if they say, no, don't pay the tribute, then they could turn him into the Roman authorities to be imprisoned and hopefully killed, which is really their hope. But implicit in this question, should we give this tribute to Caesar, is this. This subtext, we are so committed to worshiping God and worshiping God alone with all of our hearts, minds, and souls that we can't bear the thought of giving allegiance to anyone or anything else. That's, what's the, that's what they're saying by even raising this question. They're pretending to be super, super interested in worshiping God and worshiping God alone, which, of course, they weren't. Because if they were, they would have obeyed Jesus. In the Matthew text that that deals with this same story, we get one little extra detail. Jesus says to them, you're being hypocrites. Why does he tell them they're being hypocrites? Because they did not care about worshiping God so much that they were afraid that possibly by extending some wacko a hundred bucks in Rome, they would worship God a little less than what they'd hoped for. You see, even in their questioning, they expose their own hearts. And friends, to be honest, everything we ever ask of God, every time we argue with Him, every time we question Him, it's always about this issue. It's always about this question of, do we really want to worship the Lord or not? Whatever objection we have against God, whether it's personally against God or it's against something God is calling us to do, it's always on these terms. We don't want to worship Him fully, completely, totally. And throughout the New Testament, throughout the Gospels, when people ask Jesus a question, almost always it is an effort to distract from that central issue. Let me throw a little controversy up in the air. The more emotional, the more politically charged, the better. And distract you from the claim you're making on my heart. Friends, I hope you understand that, uh, that this isn't one of those passages that's going to allow you just to sit by and watch someone else do something that you are not guilty of at all or that you've gotten past. Friends, we, we haven't gotten past this. We're still contending with the very same question. Do we really, really, really want to worship God with our whole being? Do we really, really, really want to give Him our whole selves. One more thing about arguing with God, just so we're all clear. You can't argue with God without sitting on God's lap. Let me tell you what I mean by that. There was an apologist named Cornelius Van Til who uh, was on a train in Holland uh, when he was a young man. 
and he saw a little girl sitting on her dad's lap. And the dad had apparently told her to do something that she didn't want to do. And she reached up and slapped him in the face. I guess this is Europe, so that's okay. I don't know. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, uh, but Van Til observes that she could not have reached his face if he were not supporting her on his lap. You know, all arguments, all conflict with God by nature depends on God holding us up so that we could reach him to argue with him. Depends on God holding us up, showing himself to us so that we can object to him, giving us some clarity so that we could uh, have a conversation with him, giving us speech, giving us thought, giving us intelligence. In fact, let me just be super clear here. I, I really suspect... And I'm not going to get into super specifics today. I really suspect that in your heart, for many of you, there's, there's a thing, whether that's, a, whether that's giving or a increase in evangelistic boldness, whatever it is, that there's this thing. And I just want to be clear about something. You know, you're having an argument with God about this. Is you're sitting on his lap. He's given you years and years and years of faithfulness, and now everything you're afraid to lose is what he gave you in the first place. Everything you're afraid to lose by obeying came from him. He gave it to you. And what he's calling you to do with it, it's up to him, right? It's not up to you. Falling into the pit that we dug, that, that's what's going to happen if we argue with God about these things. Well, that's what this is all about. That's what this whole text is about. This text isn't really about taxes or tithing. This is about Jesus' total claim over everything. Render unto Caesar that which belongs to Caesar, he says. And render unto God that which belongs to God. And everybody knows what that means. And it leaves them speechless. Friends, it scares us to death to hear those words. Render unto God what belongs to God. Because deep inside we all understand that everything we have or could hope to have belongs to God. You know, when I was a kid, I ran away from home. Multiple times, of course. You know, for an hour or two maybe. When you're a kid, it is hard to run away from home because home is all you know. You don't have a lot of other places to be. But when I was a teenager, I tried to run away from God. And that proved even more difficult. Running away from home was at least possible. My home was a 1,500 square foot split level on the south side of Jefferson City, Missouri. I could leave my home but I couldn't not really run away from God's home. I couldn't not really run away from Him because He owns it all and He is everywhere and everything has His name on it. I could slap Him. I could ignore Him, but I couldn't escape Him. My whole being and my whole world was built on Him. There's an old, very, very, very pr proud, very optimistic statement that says, give me a lever and a place to stand, and I can move the world. And the problem is, all the levers that exist are in the world. And the only place to stand <laughs> is in the world. 
This is really just one more in a series of conversations about God's ownership over all things and our our place in that world that he has created. I, I could run away from home when I was a kid, but I really never could run away from God when I was a teenager. Because everywhere I turned, to every pleasure that I turned, to every place that I went, to every person that I dealt with, I kept coming into this simple truth. It's all His. He owns it all. His name and His face are everywhere. Psalm 139 is a comforting psalm to me now. But I remember when it wasn't. One of the verses in Psalm 139 says, Where shall I go from your spirit? I really, I want to know. <laughs> Where? <laughs> Where could I go? Where shall I flee from your presence? And another verse says, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Are you okay this morning in understanding that His name and His face is all over not only you, but everything in your life? And that means that this text isn't so much about tithing or taxes, but about a total surrender to God. Every dollar in your wallet, every cell in your body, every minute you have left to live, it's all His. And there is a bit of fear there, but there's also a bit of homecoming. Whenever I read this text, I immediately had this image in my head from a movie I saw many years ago. See if we can put that up on the screen. Well, it was there for a second. I was in the movie theater watching Toy Story when it first came out. And this image of Woody's boot with the name Andy on it created audible stir in in the theater. People saw this image of this toy that was owned and beloved by a little boy. And I could feel the stirring in the theater. You know, for all of our fear that God would ask us to be totally His, there's something deep inside of us that God made that makes us long to be a prized possession, that makes us long to have someone else's name written on us to be loved by someone, to be prized by someone. So yeah, it's scary to hear that God has total, complete ownership over us. But I want to tell you that this is the path to life. This is the path to fulfillment. This is the path to true joy. The path to true joy is to have God's name written on you and to look at it and to say, I am His and He is mine. And the longer you run away, from that simple claim, the harder it's all going to be. God owns you. If He gives you faith, that will be a word of comfort. If He doesn't give you faith, that will be a word that makes you mad. But either way, it's a true word. There's nothing in this room that God doesn't own. This isn't about taxes or tithing. This is about Total surrender. God says He loves you. The Bible says that the Lord is good to all and His mercy is over all that He's made. The Lord says in Psalm 139 that He that you are never out of His sight. Another verse in Psalm 139 says, You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. It says that He cares about every detail of your life. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. That He gave you the capacity to enjoy all kinds of pleasures. First Timothy six seventeen says, God gives everything 
to us for our enjoyment. Jeremiah 29 says that God has a plan for us. Psalm 86 says that He is prone to forgiveness and mercy. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call you. Psalm 145 that says that He is patient with you. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Romans 5.8 says that He loves you and gave His Son for you. But God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Don't you want to worship Him? Don't you want to be His? Don't you want to be His possession in totality? You know, we have a fairly high degree of certainty which coin Jesus was holding in His hand. You can actually buy these coins on eBay for three, 400 bucks. I wouldn't recommend it. I don't know what the point would be. Uh, but I've got a picture I'll show you. Friends, the front of this coin reads, Caesar Augustus Tiberius the son of the God, Augustus. I want you to think about this. Even if you're not a visual thinker, just think about this for a minute. Jesus is holding a coin written by a nut job in Rome who claims to be the son of God. (laughs) And these folks are arguing with him about whether they should give this dude a hundred bucks. And Jesus says, give the fake son of God the hundred bucks. Put the real ones right before you, and I want your life. The coin features Tiberius wearing a laurel wreath. It's hard to see in that particular image. A laurel wreath was a sign of victory. And I'll tell you honestly, the way that Tiberius got that laurel wreath was he was in charge when some other army somewhere else did his work for him, and he claimed the victory by wearing the wreath. And they're standing in front of someone who is victory and who did all of the work himself. All of the work that we could not do. And they're arguing over whether to give this schmuck a hundred bucks. And the, the one who will be victorious over the grave is standing in front of them. The other side of the coin is a goddess. We don't know which goddess it is, but there's some writing there. It says Pontiff Maxim, which is Uh, shortened for Pontifex Maximus, which means, guess what? High priest. Again, Jesus is holding a coin, talking to a group of people who are worried about this fake son of God and this fake high priest. And Jesus is there saying, I'll be your high priest. I'll suffer for you. I'll give my body to God. How is it that God could ask so little of us and we struggle so greatly to obey and surrender when God asks everything of Jesus and he gave it all for the joy set before him? Well, the answer to that question is he's Jesus. (laughs) And my hope is in him, not in my own work not in my own ability, not in my own surrender. I know that God's calling me to surrender my life to Him. I'm scared to do it. There are details involved in that surrender that frighten me. There are things that I have to lose that frighten me. And yet I understand that Jesus has already gone before me and made a way so that whatever I offer up to God, 
will not only please Him, but be for my good as well. So Jesus is the better victory. Jesus is the real Son of God. Jesus is the real High Priest. And that's what this text is really about. A few hundred years after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, letter went out to Christians all over the known world at the time, sending a warning that they should be careful not to worship the diary of a girl named Perpetua. Um, Perpetua was a martyr for the gospel. And her diary is so full of inspiration and sweetness, so encouraging and convicting, that many Christians were tempted to treat it as scripture. What was so mesmerizing about her diary? Well, it tells the story leading up to her martyrdom. Obviously, it doesn't tell about her martyrdom. Let me tell you that real quick. She was a brand new mom, still nursing a baby. And her servant girl was not yet even old enough to be a mom. And they together believed in Jesus and were together encouraged to recant and together stood and said, no, we will not recant. And so these two young girls were thrown into a Colosseum. Now, the the Colosseum had a choice on how they would kill these Christians. And a lot of times they'd put like a lion or a, something like that in there, and the death would be relatively quick. But if they really, really wanted to make it hurt, if they really wanted to brutalize the people, they'd put a bull in the Colosseum because it would just be gore after gore after gore and trampling. And so they threw these girls into this Colosseum and they stripped them of all their clothes and they had this bull heading toward them and the crowd could not bear to see these two young girls stripped naked. They just felt sorry for them, even though they were there to watch them die. And the crowd demanded that some clothes be put on these girls. And so they put some clothes on them and then they put them back out for this bull to gore them. And sure enough, this bull was just having its way with these girls. And each time Perpetua would stand up again in faith to take another blow and Eventually, the crowd calls for mercy and calls the gladiator to come out into the arena with a sword to kill these girls, to take them out of their misery. And so the gladiator goes to Perpetua to kill her. But as he looks at her, he is entranced and unable to completely take care of it and and actually botches the execution so that she's still suffering in front of this crowd. The story says that she eventually had to position herself in front of the gladiator and help him do his final blow of death. That's how she died. She got there because she was a convert to Christianity, a wealthy woman, a wealthy young woman. At the exact same time when Rome finally decided, yeah, we're going to make it illegal to be a convert to Jesus. And if you don't recant and offer a sacrifice to Caesar, we're going to kill you. She was a relatively new convert, and she was actually in a membership class, believe it or not. All the way back in the 200s, they had membership classes. Only in her membership class, Roman soldiers kicked down the door and dragged everybody out and imprisoned them. 
She was encouraged to recant, and her father came to see her, saying, Please have mercy on me, if nothing else. Recant and offer sacrifices to Caesar. And she told him, I cannot. He came again and again, asking her to recant. And finally, she said, Father, do you see that water pitcher over there on the table? And he said, yes. And she says, can that be called by any other name but a water pitcher? And he says, no. And she says, neither can I be called by any other name, for I am Christ. And she writes in her diary that the father was so enraged, he came at her as if to tear out her eyes. Friends, this passage is not that complicated. God has a perfect and complete and total demand over all our lives. We don't want to say yes to that. We throw stuff up in the air that will distract. It won't work. It'll actually implicate us. The conversation will ultimately come back to this simple question. Is it yes or is it no? Are you his or are you not? Will you worship him or will you not? Whose name do you bear? If you're hearing this message and you don't know Jesus, this is scary stuff. I'm ending the story with a martyr. We don't put the martyrs in the brochures usually. But Jesus is more than enough to help you live and die excellently in faith. And you can trust him. This guy's reign, this Tiberius, his reign is long gone. He's a nobody. And Jesus, 2,000 years later, continues to reign. This guy's victory, whatever thing he did to get that wreath, we don't even know it's so inconsequential. Jesus stands victorious yesterday, today, and forever. And whatever religion or goddess this guy was the high priest of, it's long gone. But Jesus is a high priest who sits at the right hand of God, interceding for us as a sympathetic high priest who was tempted in every way yet knew no sin. He's worth it. He's worth it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being the victorious king and high priest, the son of the most high God, the God of very God, the creator and sustainer of all things. Lord, all things bear your name. All things exist because you brought them into existence. We, Lord, live in your world. And we can ignore you. We can slap you in the face. We can set traps for you. It will all wind up hurting us and not you. There's no argument to be had. You are God. We are not. You call us to give you all that is yours. And Lord, it's all yours. I pray that you would fill us with faith this morning to to count it a good thing, to count it a blessing to have your name written on us, Lord, to be your beloved possession, to be yours. Your word says in 1 Corinthians that we are not our own, we are bought with a price. 
Lord, that is glorious, good news. We are not our own. We are not alone. You are our possessor. Father, I lift up those people who are here and just think it's just scary and crazy talk to think about God saying all of you, all of you, all the time. Help them to see that they are not and will not be satisfied until they are yours. Give us a heart of surrender this morning in Jesus' name we pray.